we are here in Joshua chapter 9, which is where we've been for the past three Wednesday nights. And that's because there's an event that takes place here in chapter 9 that, um, ha- that uh, highlights two important things that we need to glean from this chapter. So let me pray, and then we'll read a little bit of it, and then I'll bring you up to speed if you've missed the past couple of Wednesday nights, and we'll, we'll tie all this together and hopefully close out chapter 9 tonight, and then I'll pick up chapter 10 when I get back. But let's pray first. Father, as we come into your house tonight, we're just grateful for the freedom to gather here. We thank you, Lord, that you have um, allowed us to be here by your grace. We, we hear the rain, Lord, and we, we thank you for the rain. We pray that it will pass in time for us to do our baptismal service later. And we just uh, thank you, Lord, for the more than 100 people who want to be baptized tonight. We pray that you will just uh, be glorified and honored in everything from the worship we've already sung to the time in your word to the fellowship afterwards, hopefully the baptisms. We just commit this all to you, Lord, and we just thank you for your love and your grace in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and everybody said, amen. It's a coming down out there right now. All right, Joshua chapter 9. Let me give you the backdrop. Instead of reading the whole chapter again, I'm going to give you the backdrop to the story, and then I'm going to read just a small section from verses 14 through 21. But, but here's the context of chapter 9. Uh, the Israelites uh, have now successfully conquered a few cities within the promised land that God has given to them on oath that he swore to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so after the 400 years of of slavery in Egypt, the Israelites have now returned to their promised land and they have to dislodge uh, pagan people who have had opportunities to surrender to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but who for whatever reason have refused with the exception of Rahab and her family that have been graciously received uh, into Judaism as proselytes to Judaism, though Rahab was a Gentile and a prostitute at that. Uh, God is a merciful God who, who welcomes uh, people who submit to him and surrender to him and ask for forgiveness. And so she's a beautiful picture of all of us really in desperate need of a savior. And we come as sinners and God receives us when we, when we repent and and receive him. So it's not like these pagan people didn't have an opportunity. In fact, the reason why God did not initially judge them was because he said in his word, the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its full extent. And so he gave them 400 years. And he revealed himself in various ways such that Rahab certainly could say that their people knew of the reputation of God and thus she was one who surrendered to God. But the different uh, uh, cities around Jericho uh, did not. And so God says, well, then I'm going to bring judgment upon them. They've had their opportunity. And when you come here to chapter 9, as a result of the word spreading within Israel, uh, that uh, the Israelites mean business because they are following after what God's directive is. Uh, it tells us at the beginning of chapter 9 of Joshua that there were uh, a bunch of kings in the area who said, well, we're just going to fight them. Uh, we're going to take our chances as if, as if they can go up against God, and we're going to fight the Israelites, and may the better man win. That was their disposition. But there was one group of people, the Gibeonites, who said, no, we're not going to be able to defeat them that way. We're not going to engage in war. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to resort to a ruse, and we're going to pretend that we've come from a distant land, 
and that we're not, you know, locals. And thus we're going to appeal to the Israelites on the basis of the idea, it's a lie, but on the basis of the idea that we are a people that are not close, we are, we're di- we've come from a distant land, and thus they won't feel the necessity to wage war against us. We'll preserve our lives in this way, but we're going to have to deceive them. We're going to have to make them think we've come from a foreign land, and so we're going to put on tattered clothing and worn out sandals, and we're going to pack moldy bread with us, and we're going to make up this lie. We're going to, you know, get an Academy Award and we're going to suggest to them that we are a foreign people. We've come a distant land. Make a covenant with us. Promise you won't destroy us. This is what they do. The Gibeonites resort to this lie to deceive the Israelites. But the Israelites do two things that um, end up causing them great harm. Number one, they don't inquire of the Lord. They don't pray. They, they don't seek God. And the other thing is they make a covenant and they um, bind it with their word. And now they're going to have to honor their word even though they were deceived. So that's the backstory. Let's read together verses 14 to 21. And here's what it says. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, and other translations say sampled some of their provisions of the Gibeonites, right? The moldy bread. But they did, not, they did not ask counsel of the Lord. And so Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them. Okay, he swore on oath to them. To let them live and the rulers of the congregation swore to them, swore to the Gibeonites. We, we aren't going to kill you because we see that you've come from a distant land, even though they haven't. So you're not really our neighbors. You are foreigners. We're going to have mercy on you. We make a covenant. And it says in verse 16, and it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. And then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, uh, Shepharai, uh, Beroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them. By the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained against the rulers. Like, why did you guys do this? Why didn't you have better sense to investigate it? And it says, And then all the rulers said to all the congregation, Well, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the ruler said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. So last week we talked uh, about the subject of the importance of hearing God. Uh, the Israelites faulted in that they didn't inquire of the Lord. They sampled the provisions of the Gibeonites, but they didn't seek God. They didn't incline their ear to hear from the Lord. They didn't get counsel and wisdom from above. They relied on their senses, sight, touch, taste, to try to uh, discern what is happening here with the Gibeonites, and their senses had deceived them because the Gibeonites were deceptive people. If they had exercised what I refer to as our sixth 
sense, which is discernment that we get through prayer, then God will help us to see things with supernatural uh, spiritual eyes rather than just natural eyes, and we'll be able to discern things better. God wants us to be uh, spiritually discerning of things and not just relying on our natural five senses. That will only get us so far, and as all of us could probably attest at some point in our lives, one of our five senses have deceived us, that we thought we saw this and we didn't. We thought we heard this and we actually didn't. And so God wants us to be spiritually discerning. And so last week we talked about, here's three ways that we can hear from God. Number one, the counsel of God's word. What does the Bible say? We should never violate scripture. It's the handbook for life. Uh, Number two, the comfort of God's peace. Colossians 3.15 talks about the peace of God to help us discern his will. Never go against the peace that God gives you. It is his uh, one way that he helps to guide us and direct us. And when we have that, what we call as Christians, we have that check in our spirit. When something's unsettling, you should not, you should not move forward with it. It should maybe be put on pause. It doesn't necessarily mean no, but it might mean not now. If you have that check in your spirit, just wait on it, pray about it. The comfort of God's peace. And then lastly, the confirmation of God's people. Proverbs eleven fourteen talks about how there is safety in the multitude of counselors. And so they got themselves in trouble in this story because they did not inquire of the Lord. They didn't hear from God. They didn't discern God's will. They didn't uh, incline their ear to the counsel of God. Instead, they relied on their five senses and they made a covenant with the Gibeonites. They swore on oath, which leads us to the second thing that we're going to talk about tonight, the importance of keeping your word, because they're going to end up having to do what they swore on oath that they would do even though they were deceived in the process. Now, had they had a good attorney, I'm sure a good attorney could have gotten them out of the covenant agreement because, you know, there's breach of contract, false, false disclosure here. These people were being deceptive. They weren't being honest. The terms of the contract are null and void. The problem is here, you see, that they make an oath. They swear unto the Lord with their words that they will not kill these people and that they will honor them and allow them to live. Now, in the end, when they find out that they've been duped, the Israelites will at least, the rulers will at least say to the Gibeonites, okay, we're not going to kill you because we gave you our word, but we're not going to let you get by with this. There's going to be a price to pay. You're going to be woodcutters and water carriers for the rest of your lives. You're going to be indentured servants to us, but it's better than dying because we did give you our word. Now, I don't think, I'm going to give you three points about the importance of keeping our word. I don't think that the the main thing that God is saying here in all of this is that even though people might take advantage of you and lie to you and deceive you, that you should, you know, always be obligated to still keep your word under false pretenses. Okay, I don't think that's the main point here. I think the main point is related to the first point which was, had they inquired of the Lord, they would not have gotten themselves in trouble with what they commit to. So they both go hand in hand. When we're not really seeking God, and then we're ignorant about something, and we move forward with something, and we commit with our words, and we make an oath, and we swear, but we were ignorant about it, do you all understand ignorance is never a defense? 
Let me give you an example. I don't know this by personal experience. I'm just making this up. If by chance you happen to be driving out here on Cichlin 55 miles an hour in a 35 and the cop pulls you over, all right? And you say to the police officer, I didn't know it was a 35. I didn't know. Do you know you're still going to get a ticket? Likely. You might even get, if it's 20 or over, right? You're going to get, you know, what is that? Like uh, reckless driving. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't just sit there and go, I didn't know. I didn't know. Because here's what the answer to the law always is. You either knew, and you're not being truthful, or you should have known. You either knew or should have known. That's the way it is, too, with us and God. We should know or should have known. You see, the Israelites, they should have known better. You know, they can't say, well, okay, God, you know, we didn't inquire of you, and then we entered into an oath with these people, and so now, you know, we want to take our word back, because God's, God's attitude is at this point, he's like, you should have known, though, because you should have inquired of me, and because you didn't, you made an oath, and now you're obligated to your word. So they both go hand in hand here. I, I don't think this is just a blanket statement that if anybody deceives you, and you make a commitment to them, or some kind of an oath under false pretenses, you're still held to that. You're still bound to it. I think the real issue here is that they made an oath because they didn't seek God. And when we don't seek God and inquire of the Lord, then we're more accountable to what we say. So it's important to get number one down about the importance of hearing God and and seeking his counsel and then putting on pause if you're not sure. Better to do that than to enter into an agreement, some kind of a contract, some kind of an oath, swearing to something, and, and, and then you have to live with that. You know, look, this is the importance of marriage, too. When you stand and you make vows to a husband or to a wife, right, you're committing to them. And you can't, like, you know, a year into it, like, well, I I didn't know that he was an angry person. Well, you should have known. I, I, didn't, I didn't know she, you know, she's such a, you know, a, a, a spendthrift, you know, and, and I'm going bankrupt, and, and I didn't know how much she spends, but well, you should have known. Like, you can't just all of a sudden be like, I can't be in this marriage because I, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There are certain, there's weight to our words. So what we're going to talk about here is the importance of the weight of our words, the importance of keeping your word. And, and I'll start with what Jesus said in Matthew 5, uh, 5, verse 37. He said, let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You know that Jesus actually says that anything beyond yes or no, just being true to your word, words matter. And if you're not true to your word, Jesus says, you know who's behind that is the evil one. Because a man or a woman of his or her word says what he or she means and means what he or she says, we need to be people of our word. Words matter, promises matter. And while a lot of other people in the world might not see it this way, as followers of Christ, we need to take our vows, our oaths, our words very, very seriously. And here's one reason why, because this isn't point number one, but just as kind of an intro to all this, God wants us to be as reliable with our words as he is, since we are followers of his. And the Bible says in Psalm 145, 13, the Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. 
And so if God's character speaks about how faithful and true he is to all his promises, and then we say that we love Jesus and we're followers of Christ, then God says, great, I want you to take on my character too. And if he, as our father, is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made, he wants us in the same way to be faithful to all our promises, because that's his character. Being a man or woman of your word is actually a reflection of character. It's not just, you know, verbal gymnastics. It is an expression of your character. The reason why God is faithful to his promises and the reason you can rely on his promises is because he is a God of truth and character. His character will not allow him to violate his word. Can you imagine how unsettling it would be for all of us? We read all God's precious promises in the Bible about our salvation, about the hope of heaven, and then God just kind of winks and goes, you know, I'm just kidding. What? Don't we need to know that he's like true to all his promises? Don't we need to like have the assurance that what God says in his word is true and he's going to do it? Yes, of course we do, because that's his character. And guess what? He wants us to be the same. He wants our character to reflect our lives and our speech. Now, this is the reason why Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything else is from the evil one. Because we shouldn't have to add extra words to try to convince people that what we're saying is true. You know why? Because our character should speak for us. If you have to add all these other words, like, yes, instead of just yes or no, you're, you're saying things like, I swear, I swear to God, I swear to God, stick a needle in my eye, hope to die. I swear... If you have to say all that extra stuff, why should I believe you? But if your character speaks for itself, all you have to do is say yes, and I'm going to know you mean it. All you have to do is say no, and I know that you mean it. Because it's your character that speaks behind your words. And as followers of Christ, that should be our character too. And so, here's a few things that the Bible tells us the importance of keeping our word. Number one, don't speak rashly. Don't speak rashly. Sometimes we fail to keep our word because we speak rashly before we have thought or prayed everything through. And sometimes we speak rashly maybe because we overestimate our ability to deliver and we underestimate what it'll take to make good on our word. Uh, Maybe sometimes we speak rashly because we're impulsive or we're just kind of in the moment and we say something without really thinking. Maybe it's kind of a personality thing. Uh, Some of you like to speak first and think last. That's Peter's personality in the Bible. He was always saying things. He had, he had foot and mouth disease. He was constantly saying things, putting his foot in his mouth, like, you know, and, and then, you know, regrettably. But he was just one of these people who just kind of extroverted out there, was just talking all the time, and then would say things that later he would come to regret. And some of you can identify with that personality. It's not easy being you, is it? Because when you talk first and then think last, you're like, oh, why did I say that? So it's much better to think first and talk last than to talk first and think last. Proverbs 20 verse 25 says, It is a trap for a man to dedicate something rashly only later to consider his vows. That's Proverbs 20, 25. And Ecclesiastes 5, 2, the verse I have on the screen as a reference, says this, Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God For God is in heaven and you on earth, therefore let your words be few. 
Why, why does the Bible tell us that? Because the fewer words you speak, the less likely you are to get in trouble. Have you ever tried to clear something up by talking a lot? And the more you talk, you realize, I just dug a hole. I just made it worse. It's better sometimes to take the hit and keep your mouth shut and realize, I I only want to defend the three words I said. I don't want to defend the 30 next words I'm going to say, right? There's an example of the Bible, a terrible example of a guy who spoke rashly and made a vow with his mouth and had to live with it. His name is Jephthah. And his story is in Judges chapter 11. And he was one of the judges of Israel during the period when the judges ruled Israel. And here's the vow that he made, because he was fighting as the judge. He was the leader of Israel at the time, and he was fighting the Ammonites. And here's the vow that Jephthah made with his mouth, Judges 11, verse 30. It says, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said this, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, dangerous to ever do one of these if you God things, right? He's like, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So there's Jephthah like, okay, God, give us the, give us the victory here. Yeah, I promise, I promise. I, this is one of these desperate prayers. Don't pray a desperate prayer because God might just give you the answer that you pray in desperation and now you got to live with it. And so he's like, I, I promise you, I, I, I promise God, whatever comes out of the door of my house, when I come home after defeating the Ammonites, I'll sacrifice. I'll kill as an offering to you. Wh- okay, wait, a couple questions. What is he thinking is going to come out of the front door of his house? <laughs> Some neighbor he doesn't get along with? Man, I hope Bobby's visiting my home when I get home, and when he comes out, I'm going to sacrifice him. You know, a lawyer? What is he thinking is going to, his in-laws? I don't know what he's thinking, but like, what are you, what are you saying the first thing? How random is that? You know the, what comes out of his, the house? His daughter. When he gets back from battle, he got success over the Ammonites. His daughter walks out the front door. Now, He's got a dilemma here. And Bible scholars are all divided as to, did he really sacrifice his daughter or not? Is this, you know, some some, uh, twist on the words, and and did he really uh, sacrifice his daughter or not? Now, by the way... um, you know, as, as funny as, as it might sound, like who, who would he imagine would come out? Why would he ever think that, that he would have a legitimate sacrifice walking out the front door of his house? You have to remember that actually back in the days, uh, people would sometimes keep livestock in their home. I mean, you know, these are very rustic homes, small little tiny homes, dirt floors. People didn't have the luxury of barns, you know, on three acres, right? You, you sometimes would keep you know, your goat or your sheep in your house with you until such time that that goat or sheep became dinner. You know, you just, you know, it's time, it's time to kill the pet and let's just have dinner. Um, and so, so that's actually probably what he was thinking that, you know, whatever comes out the front door of his house, just one of these stray animals that they have there in the home is going to come out. He's going to sacrifice, but out walks his daughter. And, and now, what is he going to do here? So Bible scholars are equally divided here. Did he really end up sacrificing her or not? Many say yes, some say no. Those who say no point to the word and in the vow that I read a moment ago and say that it could be translated the word or, which it could be in Hebrew. What, what he ends up saying here is this. Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, instead of and, or... 
I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So some Bible scholars say what he meant was, I'm either going to dedicate it to the Lord or I'm going to sacrifice it, depending on, what, depending on what comes out of the door of my home. I will either dedicate it or I will sacrifice it. I will tell you that that interpretation that Jephthah dedicated his daughter to lifelong service in the tabernacle rather than sacrificing her is almost exclusively a Western interpretation because it appeals to our rational sensitivity. We're like, well, no rational father would follow through and actually sacrifice his daughter. No, no dad in his right mind would do such a thing. It offends our conscience, just the thought. But the fact is that all Jewish literature and rabbinical views on this story say that he did, in fact, sacrifice his daughter, that it was a rash vow that he made to God, that he regretted it, but nevertheless he followed through with it, which is why in Jewish literature he is seen as foolish and ignorant and among the worst of the judges, and it is why in the Jewish Midrash, which is a commentary in the Old Testament by ancient rabbis, it says that God's punishment for Jephthah was to cause his flesh to decay and his limbs to fall off. The truth is we don't know. That's all, you know, Jewish traditional rabbinical views. It's not spelled out for us in the Bible. I personally think that the language in Judges chapter 11 seems to indicate that, in fact, he did sacrifice his daughter. And that's why it tells us in Judges 11, verse 40, that there was a lasting memorial to her where every year the young women of Israel would go out to commemorate, or King James says to lament her life. The bottom line is we really don't know. Uh, but one thing we do know, he made a rash vow that got him in deep trouble. We have to be very careful with our words. God wants us to honor our words so we shouldn't say things rashly. Weigh your words carefully is point number two. Uh, not just don't speak rashly, we need to also weigh our words carefully. Avoid exaggerations and superlatives like always, never, absolutely. Those will get you in trouble every time. I will never forget to take out the trash. How about you just say, I will try my hardest to take out the trash, dear. Or maybe just say, I'll get around to it when I get around to it. That's better than just saying, I will always, or I will always take out the trash. I will never forget to take out the trash. You know, th things, I will always drive the speed limit. No, you won't. You didn't coming here. Why don't you just say, I will attempt to watch my speed, or I don't give a rip, but one or the other. <laughs> but don't go, don't go promising something you're never going to do. I will absolutely be there. How about just say, I'm going to do my best to be there. You know, we got to just be careful with some of these things. I'm going to buy you the best gift ever. Just say, I'll get you a gift card, because that's what's going to end up happening. <laughs> We have to learn different phrases like, I will do my best, or I will try my hardest. Avoid those superlatives, never, always, absolutely. You know a good example, of a sad example, of somebody who always used superlatives, look what I just did, who always used, who often used superlatives in the Bible was Peter. Remember at the Last Supper, when Jesus said to his disciples, I, I will tell you the truth, you will all fall away on account of me. And what does Peter rise up? And in the Bible, he uses these words, he goes, I will never... He says it. 
I will never forsake you. And he points to the rest of his brothers there on the A-team. He goes, if they all fall away on account of you, I never will. That's what he says. And Jesus looks at him and goes, Peter, I'll tell you the truth. Before, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. He looks him square in the eyes that you are making a promise you cannot keep and you will not keep. So we have to be very careful of, of speaking rashly and then not weighing our words and using these kinds of definitives and superlatives and exaggerations. You know the old saying, it's better to under-promise and over-deliver. You know, don't, don't make these promises that you can't keep. Under-promise, I think so. I hope to. I'm going to do my very best. You know, those kind of things are better. And then you deliver, and it's like, wow. But don't go saying things that you can't live up to. Deuteronomy 23, 23 says, whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with all your mouth. In Proverbs 13, 3, it says, he who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips have destruction. The Bible warns us over and over again about how we need to be careful with our words, weigh what we say. Abraham Lincoln said, it's better to keep your mouth shut and let people think you are a fool than to open your mouth and remove all their doubts. (laughs) I like that. So weigh your words carefully in addition to don't speak rashly. And the third, the last one is, this is also as important, avoid promising things unrealistically. Avoid promising things unrealistically. Ecclesiastes 5.5 says, Better not to vow than to vow and not pay, or not to follow through. Another translation says of that verse, It is better not to promise anything than to promise something and not do it. That's Ecclesiastes 5.5. You know, um, we've all watched these movies, and I cringe whenever there's some kind of a a war movie or some, some dad or, or mom is going off to war and, um, you know, and, and some parent turns to, to a child and says, you know, daddy's going to be back, I promise. And, and I, I cringe when I see that because I know, I know that that soldier has every good intention and I know that that soldier wants to, you know, calm any fears or worries or you know, the tears of the child as, as mom or dad are going off to war. I know what the intention is, and it's admirable. It's noble. But I, I also cringe at the idea that if, that if that soldier can't follow through on his or her word, how devastating it'll be to that child. You know, I, I, I heard a promise when I was five, and daddy never came back. You know, those kind of things... When we, promise, when we promise things that are predicated upon other circumstances that are beyond our control, it's a dangerous thing. So we have to be careful that if, that if there are certain, and there are a lot of things in life that are beyond our control, we don't have the ability to necessarily make good on that promise because there are other factors that contribute to it that are beyond my control. Okay, when we start then making promises that are unrealistic because they're based on other factors that are outside of my control, we're just potentially setting ourselves up for failure and we're going to disappoint a lot of people along the way. 
So what, what we need to say again, and, and this isn't semantics, this is actually trying to understand the best way to use words to communicate in a way that is God-honoring and, and will be truthful and that we can live up to. We need to learn to say things a little differently. You know, Daddy's going to do his very best to come back just as soon as possible. That's, that's better than to say, I promise, because you may not be able to deliver on that promise. So we have to be very careful with our words and make sure that we can deliver because God wants us to be true to our word because it reflects our character and our character should reflect his character. And he is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. We are living in a world, in a culture, in a day when your word does not mean as much as it once did. I remember meeting with a pastor years ago, like 20 years ago, a pastor friend of mine who's since gone on to be with the Lord, who bought property from a farmer on which he was going to build his future church. And he said to me that he negotiated the deal with a handshake. I said, what? I said, he said, yeah. We, I mean, he said, yeah, we're going to come up with a contract later. But he said all the terms were negotiated on a handshake because the farmer looked at me and he said, my word is my bond. And when I tell you I'm going to sell it to you for this price, I'm going to sell it to you for this price. Oh, I wish we lived in a day still when your word meant something. But now, unfortunately, people are like, we write that down, get it notarized. I want my attorney to look it over. I mean, we're, we're like hyper about it now. Why? Because not as many people are faithful to their word like they used to be. Your word should be your bond. We should say things that we mean and mean things that we say. And we should be truthful to our words and we should follow through on our promises because it's all a reflection of our character and hopefully our character is a reflection of God's character. And he is faithful to all his promises. We can't give people false hope or misleading optimism. We have to be truthful and honest. And there's a way that you can sell, uh, uh, say the truth without sounding um, abrasive or unkind. Um, some of you might be thinking, well, if I was really truthful, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt people's feelings. Well, there's, there's a way you can always figure out how to say it, which, which is still kind and loving and considerate. Um, but we have to be truthful to our words because God holds us to our words. Listen to James 4, 13 to 16. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go, do, uh, go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit. You know, James is talking about people who just talk, you know, randomly about, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, yes, this, yes, that. And he says, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. We shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, and such boasting is evil. And so it's not a cop-out to say, you know, I'm going to wait on the Lord's will. I'm going to defer to what God wants. I'm going to seek Him first. It's better to say, I need to pray about and seek the Lord than to just jump in and make promises and swear and make oaths and all this kind of stuff and sign contracts only later to regret it. So both of these things go very much together. We need to be hearing people, hearing from the Lord to discern his wisdom and his counsel so that then we can make promises by saying yes or no or not now. I need to pray about it. 
and then be faithful to our word because at the end of the day, our faithfulness to our word is a reflection of our character and our character as followers of Christ should be a reflection of his character. Amen? Words are important, friends. Let us be people who honor God with our words. Let's pray, and then I've got to get an update on whether we're going to do baptisms. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. We ask that you would help us to be men and women of our word, that we would be true, that our yes would be yes, our no would be no, that what we commit with our mouth we would follow through to do, that we would be true to our vows, true to our oaths, true to our contracts, our covenants, because in this way we want to honor you. We want to honor you, Lord. Your word says that you will bless us, that we find favor with you when we keep our word even when it hurts. Sometimes, Lord, it's not convenient for us to be true to our word, but Lord, you're so faithful to all your promises. And we want to live our lives in a way that reflects you. So help us to be true, Lord, always to our word. To honor you in this way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.